The problem of philosophy is to acquire a consistency without losing the infinite into which thought plunges. In this respect, chaos has as much a mental as a physical existence. To give consistency without losing anything of the infinite is very different from the problem of science, which seeks to provide chaos with reference points on condition of renouncing infinite movements and speeds and of carrying out a limitation of speed, first of all. Light, or the relative horizon, is primary in science. Philosophy, on the other hand, proceeds by presupposing or by instituting the plane of imminence. It is the plane's variable curves that retain the infinite movements that turn back on themselves in incessant exchange, but which also continually free other movements which are retained. The concepts can then mark out the intensive ordinates of these infinite movements as movements which are themselves finite, which form at infinite speed, variable contours inscribed on the plane. By making a section of chaos, the plane of eminence requires a creation of concepts. The very rules of evil, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is violent because what happens there is the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our guest today, we just want to mention we do have a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider tossing us a dollar a month there. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. We appreciate both. Taylor and I are proud to bring you returning guest Vernon Sisney. Vernon and... Taylor and I will be looking at the first part of Deleuze and Guattari's What is Philosophy? Talking about concepts, concept creation. So <laughs> such a pleasure to have you back. Got the beard in full effect. I do. Inspired by you, Coop. Yeah. <laughs> Giving me a run for my money, no doubt. Yeah. I, mean, I feel you guys... like you, you caught up to me real quick. <laughs> what's, you guys... what's the secret, right? <laughs> I think it was after being on your show. I think it was like last February or last January, January 22 or February 22. And I was like, wow, that looks badass. And then I just, I was on sabbatical <laughs> and I just got sort of, I just got sort of lazy and it started growing out. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go with this and see what happens. You, so I haven't shaved in about a year. It feels like you, nice. uh, <laughs> you, Coop and uh, Robert Brandom could do like a <laughs> cover band, right? Like, uh, ZZ Top. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, I guess, okay, so, 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 Vern, uh, you're still teaching at Gettysburg College, correct? Correct. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I know that, you know, we, we've had you on before. The listeners can refer to that, but, you know, you're, you've written a book on, on Deleuze and Derrida, right? Between the, well, sorry, is between the difference and the negative. What, what's the title of the book? I, I apologize. Off the top of my head, I'm screwing it up. I'm horribly offended, Taylor. It's the <laughs> uh, Derrida difference in the power of the negative. There, okay, I know you've uh, you've also translated some, which we mentioned, right? You you got to translate right, some yeah. Kosowski with uh, the great, which was a, uh, 
Yeah. Dan Smith. Yeah. We're having him yeah, on next it, week, I, I, so it's it's nice to. All right. Yeah, oh, set, fantastic! Fantastic. Uh, set both That's of awesome. you guys up. You're two of our, our our favorite people. Although we seem to have a lot of favorites because all of our guests have really been outstanding. And and as I tell Coop, a lot of the times when we have guests, we just try to give them momentum to keep talking because they do 80, 90% of the work. And, uh, you know, we just kind of enjoy the fruits of their labor, but yeah, uh, we're in the position of the analyst, you know, (laughs) I don't know about that. Maybe (laughs) one things I wanted to mention, obviously we'll get to the stuff you mentioned, the sabbatical at the end of the show, we can talk about what you've been working on and the projects you have, which I saw on your website. But I do want to ask you just real quickly, before we ask you to reframe your origin story, which we may have asked you last time, yeah. we always love that. But I do want to ask you before I forget, I noticed, what's this, uh, the devil, a biography that you voiced? And w- what is this? Is this, can yeah. you tell me a little bit about the project? I'm just curious. It's very interesting. First, I just want to say that I'm really honored and, and really happy to be back on the show. This was such a wonderful experience the last time. And you guys initiated me into the world of podcasts. So, uh, so I, yeah. I really appreciated it. You made it a very wonderful experience. It was smooth and I realized I didn't have anything to be as anxious about as I was. So thank you. And thank you for having me back. The Devil, a biography. I was asked by the company that is now part of another company, which I can say more about, but the company was called Learn 25. It was a company that back in the days pre-internet, I think, they would have teachers come on and do a lecture series on something and audio record it. And then they would issue catalogs that would be distributed to, you know, people who were subscribers through the catalog, essentially. And they were typically people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, things like this, people who had, you know, maybe studied something in college that they didn't end up working in, or they were just sort of self-motivated, lifelong learners. And so they wanted to, you know, take up a topic that they'd always been interested in. So that was the company. And and then with COVID, I think it like really, really took off and it moved in the last 10 years or so. It's moved more to streaming platforms and things like that. I was hooked up with this company and they asked me for a couple of ideas for a course I'd like to teach. So I suggested this course. I actually, I have a course that I offer at Gettysburg called Sympathy for the Devil. And it's, um, it's, and uh, for some reason, Learn 25 didn't want that title. So they went with the devil, a biography. But essentially, to avoid I the started, copyright, I, I used uh, a multitude of perhaps, perhaps <laughs> uh, they, they have a marketing department yeah, that, yeah, you know, yeah. knows their target audience really well. And so they were just like, you know, this is what they went with. And I said, oh, OK, that's fine. That works. It's good. Um, yeah, it's it is. It's cool. I used a, a multitude of different books on the sort of history of the concept of the devil. For sheer logistical reasons, I stuck primarily to the the Western Christian, Jewish and Christian conceptions of the devil, purely logistical reasons. But we started in the, the Mesopotamian, you know, pre-Jewish myths, the Epic of Gilgamesh, for instance, looked at the figure of the adversary look at the concept of the adversary or Hashatan in the earlier oh, Jewish texts and then how that morphs in the later, you know, apocalyptic tradition of Jewish thinking into this sort of robust, more cosmic enemy kind of figure that we now know him as, and then trace that into the early Christian tradition. And I used this book by 
Elaine Pagels, I think, called, I think it's called The History of Satan, and she traces the ways in which the Satan myth in, in the early Christian era was used to distinguish the Jewish Christians from the, sorry, the Christian Jews from the non-Christian Jews, and then the way in which that gets used in later anti-Semitic narratives. And then we we started looking at, and then we started looking at this image in Dante and Milton and yep. uh, Goethe yep. and Melville. And then we traced it on up through the contemporary era with the QAnon phenomenon. So, and the satanic panic of the eighties, which right. was yeah, part yeah. of my childhood. I remember this very, very clearly. So, so it was really, really interesting. I mean, we ended up where we began in the 15, 1600 BCE and we ended up in the, you know, the assault on, uh, on the Capitol on January 6th. Go. So it was really, really fun, <clears throat> really fun. That's really cool. And and so I get from it that, that this was something you put together. It wasn't something that was pre-scripted for you. And so did you did you write the script with it in mind as a podcast, or was it something that you wrote first and then kind of modified into a reading script? I'm just curious because you because it is kind of this audiobook-esque type thing, but it has a feel like you're like you're kind of doing this long form podcast, what is 10 and a half hours or so of material. Did you listen to it? I listened to this or, to the or some of it. I listened to the sample yesterday. <laughs> I, I haven't purchased it and, 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 or I haven't found a way to oh, okay, yeah. grab it. So I, I didn't chill out 29 bucks <laughs> yet, but I was fascinated and <laughs> no. even more fascinated now. Yeah. What's interesting is I heard you say, I, it was part of the phrase was shaitan and shaitan is like in the, shaitan, yeah. in the later dune books like this is kind of how they refer to like leto the second the god emperor like thousands of years after oh that's dead. interesting like, because normally the fremen god was shai halud or whatever the creator god basically you know they create the spice cycle and all that shit but then like yeah. after the tyranny or whatever it became shaitan and there's this whole divided god thing that i won't go into but anyways i just wanted to oh wow get my dune reference that's out of the really way cool early in the episode I wasn't aware of that connection, but that's uh, that's really cool. Yeah. So in Hebrew, that phrase Hashatan means uh, adversary. If you read the Book of Job, for instance, if you read the King James version of the Book of Job, it will say the name Satan, Whoa. but it's not a it's not a proper name. It's just just this character. It's a character in this narrative. Right. And it's a in the persona. opening of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. In the opening, uh, uh, that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. And in the opening of Job, it's a heavenly figure who is acting as a sort of prosecuting attorney, basically. He's talking to God and God is sort of like, check out my guy, Job. He's a really good guy. And the prosecuting attorney, the adversary is like, well, yeah, of course he's a good guy. You've given him everything. Take that mm -hmm. stuff away and yep. you'll see he's not such a good guy. It's much more of a friendly adversarial kind of relationship than this sort of cosmically antagonistic relationship that we see, you know, in later thinking and later yeah. religious I mean, thought. Job, so, yeah. Job always stood out for that. It just has a totally different kind of uh, feel to the rest of the Old Testament in certain ways. It's its own, yeah. not only for its philosophical implications and the resonances it has with future philosophies, whatnot, but it, it really does have this singular feel to it and, um, it also kind of strikes me as singular in the sense in which the notion of a moral order of the of the universe becomes a problem to a certain extent, yeah. right? And it becomes a problem that surpasses yeah. understanding. The even divided God. Of, even this question of, of evil or bad things happening to good people, yeah, right, right. right? And 
that surpasses human understanding. We can see, obviously, some of this question get taken up in Spinoza, which Deleuze highlights in his book on practical philosophy, which we covered last week. I'm getting ahead of myself, but just wanted to give you a forum to, to put that out there. I, I think that that's fascinating. Yeah. And so I, I do want to circle back, though, and give you a chance to maybe reinvent yourself or reimagine yourself. Just, you know, tell us maybe a, a different spin of the yarn of, of sort of how you got into philosophy, academia, obviously Derrida and Deleuze became two of your, your interested figures and you also have room for others. I know you've written on Foster Wallace. Maybe just tell us how you got starstruck by, uh, by thinking. I think the last time I was on here, I maybe talked about my evangelical background. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There was definitely that even when I was very young, there were aspects about it that didn't make a lot of sense to me. I don't know if I, if I would say it was empathy or what, but I remember having a conversation with, with my father when I was maybe 10, and I had started up until a certain age, my, my understanding of the entire history of the world was framed through the lenses of my exposure to the Bible. And so at a certain point in my life, when I became aware of other cultures outside of the uh, history of the Bible, like, for instance, the ancient Greeks, and I realized, okay, so these were people who were neither Jewish nor Christian. What happens to them in the you know context of this eschatological view that I had been taught about, you know, heaven and hell and so forth? I asked my father, do all of these people just go to hell? And my dad said, yeah. And I was just like, makes absolutely zero sense. The idea of a God being a God of love, and yet the vast majority of the human race being created just to tell a story that was going to get a tiny, tiny fraction of a percentage of human beings into heaven while the rest of them suffered for eternity in hell just didn't make a lot of sense to me. So so this was one of the things that sort of, sort of, you know, struck me as odd. And there were just parts of it that didn't make a lot of sense. When I was 15, I, I think I told you that I was into The Doors, the, the band The Doors, and started reading a bunch of biographies of Jim Morrison and mm -hmm. wanted to basically become the sort of, <laughs> you know, the 90s version of Jim Morrison. And I saw what I found was that his influences were as much, if not more, intellectual and literary and philosophical as they were musical. And so like Nietzsche and Rambeau and Aldous Huxley and William Huxley, Blake. Yeah. And it's interesting, I was as I was rereading What is Philosophy, there's that quote that's the doors of perception. There's a line where they say the doors of perception and it's in quotes. And I was like, yeah, my 15 year old Morrison fanboy, uh, <laughs> like sort of jumped for joy. Mm -hmm. But so I started reading a lot of these works. I was 15 and I read The Antichrist by Nietzsche and was just absolutely blown away. I got into philosophy at that point. I started reading Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre, more mm -hmm. of the literary works than like being a nothingness. I took right. a crack at being a nothingness, but had no idea what the fuck I was reading. The thing about Nietzsche is like, there's a lot that you won't get, but even as a 15 year old, there was a lot that I did understand, you know, right. in, in the Antichrist. And, uh, and so that stuff really stuck with me, but I got through, you know, high school and I, I uh, didn't go right to college. I got married, bought a house. And then after working in a factory for a few years, I decided I wanted to go back to school. While I was in college, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. I was I was planning to just finish with an associate's degree and, uh, you know, advance myself at my my uh, factory, try to work my way up into the business part of the factory and become part of the bourgeoisie. But I took an ethics class. I took an ethics class 
at community college, and that just sort of hooked me back into philosophy. Then when I went to the university, I ended up studying philosophy. But I will add this component of the story that I don't think I, I mentioned last time. When I went to the university, I was a double major in psychology and philosophy. You know, I got into psychology thinking it was going to be Freud and Jung and Lacan and Melanie Klein and these figures, you know, that's what I wanted to do. And then when I got more and more advanced in the study of psychology and realized that's not really what it is, right? And that what really interested me more about the psychological dimension of things was the philosophical, was actually the philosophical dimension of things. I became less interested in the contemporary understanding of psychology, but I was, I was a double major and I quickly realized that I could not possibly, like I said, I I had a full-time job. I had a wife, I had a son by this time. I had a mortgage and I just knew that trying to do a double major was just, it was going to be way too much work. I met with a figure in the psych department at my university who was actually a really, I won't say his name, but he was actually a really big name in, um, a certain branch of psychology, a huge name, in fact. And I went to meet with him because I said, I, I have decided I want to go on and I want to get a PhD, but I'm trying to decide whether I want to do it in psychology or in philosophy. And this person was just an absolute asshole and made me feel, made me feel like as someone who was, who had come from a community college, who had a uh, wife and a family and was working full time, that there was just no way that I was going to be able to do this, right? I left his office that day. I mean, he didn't come right out and say that, but the size and the eye rolls and the condescension really sort of hit me hard. And I left that day thinking, you know, maybe he's right. Maybe I'm in over my head. Maybe, you know, I was good enough for the community college, not good enough for the university. I was actually in tears when I left his office. And then when I went to meet with the chair of the philosophy department, none of that stuff even came up. He took me around and introduced me to everyone in the department. He sat down with me and explained to me the entire process of the undergraduate degree, the GRE, what grad school looked like, right on up through dissertation and the job market. I left there feeling like, yeah, I can't actually do this. And uh, it goes to this point in, in what is philosophy about contingency and the importance of contingency. That encounter, those two encounters were determinative for me. I mean, they were decisive and, you know. I did not want to work with this one asshole. I wanted to work with this other guy. So I guess one of the things that I would say is that as teachers, I mean, this has always stuck with me, that as teachers, we may not realize the impact that we're having on our students when we converse with them, but every single encounter that we have with students is monumentally important and can seriously make or break that student's sense of confidence and sense of self. So that has always stuck with me, that encounter and then the extent to which that had such a, a massive impact on the trajectory that I took. And you mentioned my literary influences. I've always, even before I had read Deleuze and and gotten to know Deleuze very well, I'd always been the sort of thinker who looked for ways of making sense of the world that were artistic and philosophical and literary. And, And Wallace was always interesting to me because, well, I mean, for two reasons. First off, I found out that he grew up just a little bit north of where I grew up. I grew up in Mattoon, Illinois. He grew up in Urbana-Champaign, Illinois, mm-hmm. where his parents were. Um, his dad was a philosopher at the uh, University of Illinois. So that was really interesting to me that he had a very Midwestern sort of mentality. And I really found that sort of captivating. And then also that he had studied philosophy as an undergraduate and had written a thesis on free will as an undergraduate. And so I got very interested in Wallace through through that lens. And then more recently, I've gotten into Cormac McCarthy quite a bit. 
So I'm teaching a class next spring on Cormac McCarthy, and I've been uh, I've been going to and participating in a lot of conferences, and I'm getting some pieces accepted on Cormac McCarthy. But I will say I am hosting the David Foster Wallace conference here at Gettysburg in June. So it's uh, it's wow. been a long time coming. I think we started talking about this in 2018, maybe, and. Uh, and so it's finally coming to fruition. And I think we're planning to have somewhere between 60 and 80 people here in Gettysburg nice. for the Wallace Conference. So I'm really excited. That, McCarthy seems to be having a moment, at least online. I feel like over the past yeah. maybe month or a couple of months, there's a lot more discussion. People are reading like Blood seems to be, and what is it, Sutri or Sutri? I can't remember the way it's pronounced. Yeah, Sutri, I think. He's had a, a huge sort of... Not that he I was necessarily a, obscure, but it feels like, but yeah, it's, it feels weird to exactly, call it a renaissance, exactly, but he kind yeah. of definitely like seems to be popping it's up. A new I, plateau. It's a new I wonder plateau. what it is. It's like <laughs> maybe McCarthy has always struck me as this Texan Zarathustra almost, you know, like he's got that Melville, like old school, like old prophet sort of vibe to him. Yeah. I think that what has sort of catapulted this this moment recently is that he had this release of these two novels last year in October and November Passenger and Stel the Passenger and Stella Maris and part of the reason that that was so huge was that he started talking about these novels after the road I think sorry he said that he was working on a novel called The Passenger after the road and the road was 2006 you know, he would mention things and say that, you know, he was working on these novel or this novel, sorry. And everyone kept, you know, well, when's the novel coming out? And when's the novel coming out? And then he released The Counselor in 2013, you know, the screenplay that was directed by Ridley Scott and had I love, uh, Brad. I, I kind of love it. A lot of people yeah. malign it, but I very much enjoyed it. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. It became this sort of apocryphal is it going to happen or not mccarthy's up there in his late 80s at a few years ago and now i think he just turned 90 and then finally out of nowhere comes this you know announcement that he's not releasing just one but two novels the passenger and then stella maris which actually are part of the same story and essentially as he was writing the novel he realized that there were two kind of stories embedded in this novel so he released one as its own kind of thing but it's also interesting because it incorporates a lot of his recent interests in the unconscious and in philosophy of mathematics and philosophy of science that he's been working on for the last 20 years. He's been at the uh, Santa Fe, what's it called? Santa Fe Institute, SFI? Something yeah, like that. I yeah, I think so. Yeah, the Santa Fe Institute. He's been hanging out there and speaking to all of these, you know, advanced theoretical physicists and philosophers of mathematics. And so, so I think that the release of that just created this sort of enormous buzz. Right. He's, he's had this sort of resurgence of people reading his stuff. I feel like it'd be a good time to maybe look at a McCarthy novel for the show or something just to do something different. So sure. we might have to like get you back at some point. That'd be, that'd be wonderful. I want to do more literature. Wonderful. So that's why I kind of rely on, I'm always bringing up Dune and stuff like that because you know, yeah. I have that literature background too. And so for me, it's like about, I understand things via narrative. That's the best way for me to understand because, and yeah, it's like, I, I visualize the things in my head. I imagine it in my head. And that's sort of how I yeah. work through my understanding, which, as you can see in my notes here, with regard with some of the nuances and what is philosophy, I had a little bit of trouble finding my footing. Maybe if I keep throwing Deleuze at, at, at Coop, I should uh, bring in something like Logic of Sense, where literature is, is kind of one of the main vehicles of developing the thought. And also, the it's an interesting structural 
in both senses of structuralism and in the sense in which it's it's structured in the in the little series and the little interventions we definitely want to get into what is philosophy that was sure kind of just 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 a bouncing off point but i wanted to give you the chance to Vern. you, you mentioned before the show just about teaching Deleuze, which is not always something oh, that yeah. we necessarily focus on but i do feel like you can see in deficit repetition, Deleuze has an idea of what teaching should be, right? It should not be something that's like based on an imitation, but it should be a doing with, right? It should be something yeah. that's kind of, uh, it's something that's meant to be engaging, not necessarily passing from a master to a, to a student, but it's something that's like cooperative. And also the fact that I think in the introduction, they kind of talk about the whether they call it the three ages or the three modes of philosophy, you've got the encyclopedia of the concept, the pedagogy of the concept, and then this commercial professional mm. training. And it's really the restrained aspect of the pedagogy of the concept that they call for to keep us from falling into the disasters of, you know, of universal capitalism and the trend, at least in the early nineties, seemingly being at least in France, this notion that, uh, that like, concepts were were for sale like the market of ideas like it's it's you're really yeah. pitching a concept and i think that that's something that Deleuze is kind of horrified by so maybe we can like learn... don draper style i've been watching right. that man so i'm thinking about that meme where he's mm. got the board and he's like no it is very much yeah. that that sense and so maybe this gives us a chance to start with how the end the introduction with this notion of a pedagogy of the concept and maybe that's some that's how we can get started a little bit tackling two birds one stone and dive into talking about teaching Deleuze which is not something I have done directly with a class but I yeah. do feel like it's something I'm interested in and maybe that'll spark a little bit of uh maybe that'll that'll curb Coop's you know dissatisfaction with the material that we read today, which is oh, I, admittedly dis dissatisfaction, yeah. too strong of a word. Oh, well, okay. It, it's, it's not as sexy. Let's say that as anti-Oedipus or a thousand plateaus, there is something more restrained. It is, yeah, it is this meditation at the end of, of life, right? They kind of even say <laughs> that, that asking the question, what is philosophy is sort of this, uh, it takes old age to look back at. So maybe we can sort of revivify it a little bit and just give you a chance to to talk a little bit about what you're doing and we can bounce off from there one of the books that i am working on is is a book called reading deleuze yeah that I is saw that. for uh whip whip and stock my approach to writing the book is is that i want it to be a book that is that has a sort of scholarly dimension that is useful and makes an impact in the scholarly world but at the same time i want it to be the sort of book that someone who is really starting to venture into Deleuze for the first time can pick up and it will help them. That's, you know, so I'm, I think my writing always tries to walk that line between actually being scholarly important and at the same time being accessible. I strive for that anyway. And so I thought, well, what better way to, you know, help develop my own pedagogical abilities with respect to Deleuze than to teach a class on Deleuze. And so when I first offered the class, I was worried because it didn't get a whole lot of students at the beginning. I was I was thinking that I was going to end up with, you know, not enough to actually float the class. Yeah. And then at some point, the gates just came open and students flooded into it. And then I think I ended up with something like 30 students in the class or something wow. like this. Did you have to um, overload? Yeah, students? it was. 
which I, I tend to do anyway. Yeah. If a student is on the wait list and they write me and say, hey, can I get in? Yes. Unconditionally, yes. Uh, yes, you can get in. My approach to structuring the class was I'm in the Department of Interdisciplinary Studies. And so I tried to think of the class as, you know, I want to look at the, the metaphysics and the politics and the art and then end up with what is philosophy. So I did Difference in Repetition and then Anti-Oedipus and then the Francis Bacon book. And then we ended with What is Philosophy? Mm. And I thought, well, Difference in Repetition and Anti-Oedipus themselves are massive, massive texts. So there's no way that I could do all of both of those texts. Right. I made a calculated guess and decided that we should cover all of Difference in Repetition and then chapters one and three of Anti-Oedipus, the one on the Desiring Machines and the mm -hmm. one on the Savages, what is it, Savages, Tyrants or something, and, and uh, Civilized Men, something like this. Despots. Um, so Despots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. I think that's it. But at any rate, you know, that would give them the psychoanalysis and the sort of social political, you know, systems. My idea was, okay, we're going to work through the whole of Difference in Repetition. We're really going to dive into this text, spend six weeks really getting all of the nuts and bolts of Difference in Repetition. And then the idea was they'll have the conceptual apparatus that will then help them do anti-Oedipus and Francis Bacon and what is philosophy. I realized about halfway through the semester that that was maybe not the best approach. And the reason was that the students, by the time we got to the end of Difference and Repetition, they were lost in Difference and Repetition. You know, they had so much trouble in Difference and Repetition, even though the daily reading assignments were not that much. They were, you know, 15 to 20 pages. They were just completely lost in the, in the weeds. But then we got to Anti-Oedipus and actually going into the class, I thought, I thought anti-Oedipus was going to give them even more trouble right. than difference in repetition. You know, you start off and it's like, you know, Judge Schreiber has sunbeams in his ass. And it's like, I was afraid that, you know, the students were just going to be like, what the fuck is going on here? You know, but it was actually the other way around. Difference in repetition, they struggled through. And then we got to anti-Oedipus and like unanimously across the board, the students said, this is so much better, so yeah. much easier. And I was blown away by this. So. The next time that I do the class, I think I will shorten the difference in repetition stuff and just do chapters one through three and really drive home the uh, image of thought chapter and yep. then yep. springboard mm -hmm. into anti-Oedipus and cover all of anti-Oedipus instead of all of difference in repetition. I was struck by, you know, something you were talking about with the pedagogy of the concept and, the, you know, Deleuze and Guattari call it the more modest task, the pedagogy of the concept. I think my own approach to teaching is not to pat myself on the back. I think my insecurities play pretty well into my pedagogy because I'm perfectly okay with admitting that I don't know something. If students challenge me on something or say, well, you know, I don't, I don't agree with this or, or this seems to conflict with this, I'm perfectly happy to say, you know what, you're right. That does seem to be a problem. I need to think about that a little bit more and I'll come back and we'll talk more about it. And so I think that plays to my favor very well because I think students appreciate when you're authentic and, you know, and you admit your own ignorance, your own blind spots. Of course. And then the other thing that I think worked really well with Deleuze and, and Guattari was that I do think that because so much of what they're doing is is revolutionizing the way that we think. I mean, it really does come back to chapter three of Difference and Repetition. There are so many ways in which what they do is easily taken up and applied in a lot of different domains. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to 
emphasize the works that I did. You know, we did straight up history of philosophy, psychoanalysis and uh, social political thought, Marxism, philosophy of art. And then, you know, what is philosophy has all of the stuff on the relationship between philosophy and, and science and, and the arts and, and literature in particular. I really wanted them to see that there are all these different ways in which what Deleuze and Guattari are doing is applicable to any field of study that they are interested in. And the first time I ever taught what is philosophy was in an intro to philosophy class. This is a 100 level class. And oh, wow. so through the semester we had... So through the semester, we had read Plato's Republic and, you know, Descartes' Meditations and Hume's Dialogues and Kant's Prolegomena. And so, you know, the students are just kind of like glazed over, their eyes are glazed over. And I'm thinking, I'm going to get to what is philosophy. And these students are just going to be like, oh, what the fuck is this, right? It was actually just the opposite. We got to what is philosophy. And for the first time, like in a chorus said, this is the first time that this class has really felt like it's impactful in my everyday life. Mm -hmm. A lot of the STEM students were especially drawn to the book and actually said, you know, when we're talking about the forms and all of this stuff, like on their, on their evals, we're talking about the forms and all this stuff. It's just like, you know, this, this doesn't relate to me at all, but we get to what is philosophy and they found it extremely applicable and extremely relevant in their everyday lives. So, and I have had that experience, not just in this Deleuze class, but but, you know, teaching, introducing little nuggets of Deleuze and other classes that I've taught. And yesterday or Thursday, I guess, was my last day at Deleuze. And I dedicated like 10 minutes to I just want to hear what your takeaway is from the class. And a lot of students said something to that effect. There were a couple of them who said, you know, my friend and I, we got together in the library the first night of the first reading assignment, which was the introduction to Difference and Repetition. And they said, and we read it aloud to each other really slowly. And we're just like, what in the hell is going on? You know, you know, we couldn't make sense of it. And they said, but we got to the, we get to the end of the semester. And I really do feel like now going back and looking at these things that I understand it and I understand what's going on. I understand what's at stake in the project and I see this stuff in the world. And so that's the best compliment that I can be given as a teacher. I think. That's really great. And I do think difference repetition while the, the preface is is fascinating and, and, and kind of lulls you into a sense of security because it's like, hey, it's part detective novel, part science fiction. Yeah. You, know, you only write on the edges of what you know. And you're like, oh, well, yeah, that's kind of how I get that. And then the introduction starts and shit gets real. Chapter one and chapter two are very difficult. I think chapter one is is almost like it's that white noise at the beginning of an album to ward you off. It, you're immediately getting into Aristotle and the comprehension, extension of the concept, genus, species, all of this shit that, I mean, it's important and it, it's going to set up and pay off later on. But while you're in the midst of it, you're not exactly sure what is the point. I would suggest if it's possible, just, you know, if you want to just take image of thought chapter and just do that, if that's possible, if that works and if that's enough, that to me is really interesting. And you do see, for example, in the, especially in the what is a concept chapter, the first chapter of what is philosophy, you see a lot of the difference repetition yeah. stuff come up. And then you also see in the second chapter on the plane of eminence, the image of thought takes on and is itself developed in a new way because we've gone from kind of this almost ideal of perhaps thought without image 
to that being almost relegated to, I don't want to say an impossibility, but perhaps a, its own illusion where the image of thought doesn't necessarily, is it merely put forth in a kind of negative way, vein? Because in the image of thought chapter, it really does seem like the emphasis is on the dogmatic image of thought, the orthodox image, the moral image of thought is that which is to be struggled against rather than it taking on kind of this positive elaboration insofar as we could say the image of thought is part and parcel of laying out the plane of eminence. So I think, I think in between the two, there is an interesting, if not transformation, at least the thread or the trajectory has shifted, right, in a certain way. I think that's right. And you're actually not the first person who has, has, has advised that, you know, I think you could probably get away with just doing the image of thought chapter from difference and repetition. One of my buddies who's actually lives in Baltimore, uh, you know, when I told him I was, I was teaching difference and repetition cover to cover, he was like, are you out of your fucking mind? (laughs) You know, uh, but the image of thought chapter, you know, he thought was just absolutely important. You know, doing it that way, if I did it that way, would allow me to bring in some other essays and things too, like the, um, the postscript on the societies of control, for instance, which I think is really good. And, and maybe one of his interviews on the cinema, I really love the cinema books, but the thing about the cinema books is that when you, they're very, very hard. It's not the sort of thing that you can do halfway. You kind of have to get the taxonomy out of part one, even though the more really, really interesting stuff comes out in part two, it's a commitment. And that's why I didn't do it in the class, but I could easily do maybe one of the interviews or something like that. So that would be, that's something to certainly think about. And you're right. I mean, the first, the first two chapters of difference and repetition, where you're getting into Aristotle and university of being an equivocity of being and in order to make that make sense you have to kind of go into aristotle's metaphysics and why aristotle is so insistent that being is not a genus and how that plays into his understanding of the categories and the equivocity of being and the doctrine of analogy it was extremely complicated stuff and um that's not a bad idea. Another thing that happens in between these two texts, difference and repetition and what is philosophy, as I was revisiting what is philosophy to teach it, I was struck by how charitable Deleuze's reading is of all of these figures towards whom he has expressed such hostility throughout yeah. much yeah. of his career. Figures like Descartes and Hegel, in the sense that I think it's almost like in what is philosophy, he starts to recognize them as part of this larger tradition in which, you know, Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Kant, Hegel, we're all trying to operate on this plane of eminence and we're all doing this. And yeah, there are things that these folks do that lend themselves to compromises with transcendence, for instance. But nonetheless, there are positive things that I can point to in all of these figures, even the ones that um, he has expressed outright hatred for. (laughs) He says in that one interview that, you know, he, he was beaten over the head or something with uh yeah. with the history of philosophy and like he he hated the dualisms of Descartes and the negativity of Hegel and all of this stuff. It feels like a sort of a retrospect of old age as you as you said Taylor like mm-hmm. you know yeah these were my enemies but now I recognize them as in a sense comrades even if adversarial comrades comrades. Vern we we talked before the show but I think it's it's worth as a excursus before kind of getting back to, you know, the pedagogy and sort of what works with teaching. We had an interesting thought from um, 
Charles Duvall, who suggested reading Antiedipus for the first time or teaching it, one should perhaps start with chapter four, yeah, which yeah. is the practical kind uh. of chapter of what schizoanalysis <laughs> does. And then go back and read chapters one, two, and three, because then you start with kind of the meat of the matter. And then you can kind of, even if that might at first be not as captivating as uh, Schraber with yeah, right. things in his ass <laughs> and doesn't immediately grasp you. <laughs> I do think it puts, it puts to the forefront some of the concerns and there are refrains in the, in that last chapter, there are refrains of some of the critiques that you get a sense of, even if some of it will be obscured differently, I do feel like that's an interesting thing, but I, but I wanted to take this, this moment to just suggest one of the interesting things we talked about, which I pointed out in Francois Doss's intersecting lives, I think in French, it's like crossed biography. It's the biography of Deleuze and Guattari, right? And, um, and he kind of, this is deep into the book. This is like page 456 or something where he kind of points out that Deleuze in the end of his 1980 seminar, I think on cinema, one of the last classes, he kind of said he, he wants to write this book on what is philosophy. And apparently he said it in such a way that the, the crowd laughed. And I think that too, what's funny to me in my head is in Diffus' Repetition, in his dissertation defense of Diffus' Repetition, he points out that the what is question is a bad question. You know, he, he kind of says it reaches its height in, in Hegel, right? It's the, but you see it in, even from Plato, too, that it's taken seriously. And he's like, this is not a good way of forming questions based on problems because it, it still involves this kind of tracing from solutions, blah, 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 right? I mean, that's a whole different can of worms. But I guess I was interested in thinking about how how Guattari gets written out of this story because Doss kind of says Deleuze manifestly wrote it alone, that it's kind of more his pet project. And it was kind of Guattari's signature was added on as this kind of homage to Guattari. Now, obviously, we don't have to go spend too much time speculating about this. I think my contention was I think the writing assemblage had, had changed by that point, right? Guattari was not doing the majority of writing. He wasn't chained to his desk, you know, for six hours, kind of like Deleuze whipped him. It was Deleuze made Guattari his whipping boy and like, go, go write. And, and I'll <laughs> sort of edit. I think that that makes sense to me that perhaps Deleuze had more of a hand in the writing and who knows how much Guattari, if any, writing went on, but I, I'm not sure if writing Guattari out immediately or so out of hand and really just trying to, I have a couple of reasons why, and I'll, I'll be quick. One, I feel like this happens in Deleuze studies, or it, it, maybe that has started to change, but the majority of, of Deleuze studies, at least when I started getting into Deleuze and the, and the aughts in the 2000s, I really do feel like there was so much of a tendency to already write out Guattari as though the and were not important. It really was like Antiedipus and the Thousand Plateaus, Deleuze's creative turn or something. And it's like, what? there's always this tendency that for the and Guattari to, to drop out, even to the point where some writers would reverse it and say like Guattari, Deleuze, and, and maybe try to like, reverse the the hierarchy but they always felt like one as though Deleuze was the one to be taken seriously he was the philosopher he was the thinker Guattari was just kind of the sidekick 
So that's one of my kickbacks against writing him off the, this book out of hand, even if I might admit that it's, it's different for them. But the other thing too would be two things that jumped out at me immediately reading this part one, which we focused on. One was, as I mentioned, uh, you know, as they say, either in the intro, I think it's in the intro, but it could be in chapter one, that the first principle of philosophy is, um, is the fact that universals explain nothing, right? The concepts aren't universal, but universals themselves have to be explained. So there's this attack on universals, abstract universals, which I think Guattari makes front and center in his uh, solo work from the 70s on. That's a big target for him in The Machine Learning Conscious. We can see that as a refrain for him. I think that he's also thinking about universals in psychoanalysis, like the universality of the Oedipus complex, for example, and how that's suspect. The other thing too, though, is how philosophy and art and science, each in their own way, are dealing with chaos. And I do think that chaos, even if that's a primordial term for philosophy, right? We can see it all the way back to the Greeks, but really it does feel like Guattari in those last years is thinking about chaos in very interesting, creative ways. And so I feel like, again, this could just be a residue or an after effect of their conversations. But the fact that, you know, philosophy is facing chaos and trying to cut out a plane of eminence that sieves the chaos and makes a and sort of forms a consistency in the midst of chaos and the other and, and again science and art deal with chaos in their own way but uh i i feel like that that to me is a very guatarian aspect so i just wanted to throw that out we can talk about I, I threw out a lot there but we can talk about any of that we can kind of bounce off of it that's something i just wanted to address because it's always kind of been in the back of my mind, you know, this claim, which I didn't just first hear from Doss's biography. I feel like it's kind of been in the ether, even though what is philosophy, I feel like too, is a little bit unrepresented in Deleuzeana compared to Anti-Oedipus, compared to maybe Logic Sense to really A Thousand Plateaus gets a lot of the press in, in the Anglosphere. Maybe that's starting to change, but I'll recede from the convo let you guys respond to that. I think that's exactly right. I've wondered this a lot, why it is that, that Guattari gets such, gets so often shortchanged in terms of the credit that's attributed to the impact of Deleuze's thinking. And um, the only thing that I can, well, one of the reasons, I shouldn't say the only, but one of the reasons I think is that so many people, myself included, find their way into Deleuze by working on someone else. Like my own first encounter with Deleuze was working on Nietzsche as an undergrad. I picked up Nietzsche and philosophy as what I thought was just a, a work of secondary literature on Nietzsche. And it's actually not. It's it's Deleuze doing Deleuze through Nietzsche or something like that. And so I think that so then once that struck me the way that it did, and then I found my way to difference and repetition, my introduction into the relationship Guattari was through Deleuze. And so and I think that because so much of the narrative has been driven by philosophers who have encountered Deleuze through some kind of, you know, encounter with other philosophers. And Dan Smith, I think, will say the same thing, that his own discovery of Deleuze was through Nietzsche and philosophy. I think that that has something to do with it. At the same time, it's unmistakable the extent to which Guattari had 
a massive influence in Deleuze's thought. And um, more recently, I've tried to, I also think that one of the things that's that's a little difficult about Guattari is that he's got just, when you read his, his, his solo stuff, that it's got such a different feel and it's got a, um, I'll just say it. I, the first time I tried to read Guattari, I was just completely lost. And yeah. it's like for someone who, feel, you know, when you feel like you've got a pretty good handle on Deleuze and then you step into Guattari and it's kind of like, oh, well, this is much more difficult than I thought. But I do think the the payoff is is big. And so like a student and I last semester worked through the it's a very short but very difficult essay machine and structure, which mm-hmm, I yeah. think is from 69, maybe 69 or 70. That is a response to Deleuze. And uh, you can see so much of the fingerprints from that piece all over anti-Oedipus. And I think, Taylor, I think we were talking about this before the recording, the geophilosophy chapter. I really feel like Deleuze needed Guattari to help him understand the ways in which his thinking, his radical philosophy could be used in a political register. I think that I reject the the readings of Deleuze that say there's no politics in him, like the Peter Howard reading, for instance, as good of a book as I, I think that is. But I, I reject that because if you if you look at the image of thought chapter, Deleuze is very clear that one of the most pernicious elements of the dogmatic image of thought is that it lends itself to political despotism in all kinds of forms. So, I mean, it's very, very clear. And, and the, the whole notion of the political image of thought, I'm sorry, the uh, dogmatic image of thought or the moral image of thought is that it, it restricts modes of existence. It restricts modes of thinking. And Deleuze says that philosophy, you know, its its task is to overturn the doxa. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, there's this political political dimension to Deleuze's thinking from the very, very beginning. But I definitely think that Guattari helps him implement that uh, and bring in, uh, you know, Marx in a way that Marx had never played a, a huge role in Deleuze's thinking before. And honestly, the psychoanalytic stuff, too, and the the understanding of schizoanalytic breakdown of desire versus the psychoanalytic Oedipal understanding of desire, how the Oedipal understanding of desire just fits, you know, hand in glove with the capitalist socius and so forth. Guattari, I think, irrevocably changed Deleuze's project. I I guess I've rambled quite a bit too, but what is philosophy? I think you can see Guattari's, uh, you know, fingerprints all over it. Even if he's not the one, as you said, sitting at the table doing the writing, I think his fingerprints are all over it. Machine and structure was was kind of an incipient point for their for the initiation of their ongoing relationship. You know, 69 is that year. And you can see too, this is kind of getting back to your thinking through the pedagogy. One of the things that I would say, and Coop, I know you would have something to say to this, would be if you were to restrict difference of repetition to maybe the image of thought chapter and perhaps the conclusion, you could have alongside that or even before that as preparatory material, the book on Proust and Signs, which... Deleuze revised and re- reissued as a longer edition because of the work that, because of the impact that Guattari had on him. And I know that, Coop, I know like you and I had such a good time reading Proust and Signs and discussing that, which again kind of shows your penchant for like deploying the concept with respect to literature. There's something to be said about that. And somebody, I forget it was Stival or Dan Smith that pointed out that whoever had done the translation was a poet themselves. So I think that lent itself to that kind of aesthetic enjoyment of that text. But yeah, I thought 
in my experience, that was probably the best entry point for Deleuze, even though it feels a bit more like he feels a bit more structuralist within it. But I think it still sets up because you do have a little bit of discussion of like the body without organs and some of the other concepts. Mm -hmm. I loved it and thought it was a great read. And, you know, the prose is magnificent. And I didn't feel too like out of my depth. What's nice, too, is you don't really have to have any foreknowledge of Proust. Right. Yeah, um, that's true. The I, way that he he goes through it and and same way that uh, Guattari deploys his reading of Proust in Machinic Unconscious, which is actually much more of a kind of sustained literary reading rather than this, rather than a kind of more philosophical reading from Deleuze. And so I think that that also kind of tells, I think the other reason why Guattari sometimes gets left out is philosophers can claim Deleuze, whereas Guattari is kind of more of a nomad. He's not really welcomed by too many psychoanalysts. You know, there are exceptions. And schizoanalysis still here and there, like in South America and other places, has a vibrant domain. But compared to the dominance of Freudian, Lacanian, Jungian, etc., he doesn't have a place in analysis. He doesn't have a place necessarily in the history of philosophy, although that can be debated and probably should be. You know, he's kind of a mad scientist, as I like to think of him. For example, in the, the SoCal and Brigmont book, right, the fashionable nonsense, where they try to debunk all of these thinkers, Lacan being one of them, Deleuze gets a sustained chapter, for example, kind of, for example, making fun of his, his an exact use of, of scientific and mathematical concepts, which I think he writes elsewhere and in many places sort of how this is done without becoming metaphor, although that that missed the authors of that work. But Guattari's chapter, they quote two pages of chaosmosis and then just say, what the fuck is this? That's all Guattari gets. That's the extent of his uh, presence in the fashionable nonsense, which is also kind of how I feel like uh, Badu treats Deleuze and the Clamor being sometimes. He'll just quote out of context a page from difference of repetition or logic of sense because he doesn't really deal with the works co-authored with Guattari. He really kind of restricts to the pre-Guattari stuff. And Badu kind of butchers it to a certain extent, which is easy to do. And I know you've written on Badu and Deleuze, so has so have others of our of our friends, John Rofe, Dan Smith. And you mentioned Peter Hallward, right? That's kind of a stand-in, too, to a certain extent for this reading of Deleuze, which includes, you know, Badu says it a little bit differently. It's not necessarily there's no politics in Deleuze, but that, that politics doesn't have its own kind of, as Badu would say, it doesn't have its own truth procedure, right? It's not its own kind of domain of thinking. And that could be, on the one hand, perhaps you could say that for the work without Guattari, even the caveats of you, what you mentioned, for example, with the image of thought chapter. But I feel like looking at anti Oedipus, looking at a thousand plateaus, that to me seems to fall short. And while he does say philosophy, science, art, all have their particular ways of thinking, and they're all equally creative, that would be something where if I'm playing devil's advocate, perhaps one thing that's missing from the square, from the four truth procedures is what happens to politics and what is philosophy. And I think that that's something that has to be, I think that 
for Deleuze, if I were to speak on his behalf, but I'll just throw this out there, is that it's it's the in-between, it's the inter of the disciplines and, and their their sort of coexistence on inceiving chaos. But that probably wouldn't satisfy Badu. In any case, that's maybe more of an academic thing, just kind of continuing that line of, of thinking and we can we can maybe bounce off of something else or, you know, just just throwing yeah. that out there. The politics comes out really, really heftily, I think, in the uh, geophilosophy mm. chapter. Mm-hmm. But you're, you're right. He does not give it, or they, I should say, do not give it its own category in the work. But I think that your way of characterizing it as what's taking place between is a really interesting way to think about it. That in a certain sense, it doesn't, I'm spitballing here, so this may be completely inaccurate, but that it doesn't get its own thing because to a certain extent, every aspect, the philosophy, the art, the science is political. And we can see that drawn out really well in the the geophilosophy stuff and their way of upending a sort of a certain interpretation of the history of Western thought, that it's always heterogenetic and that it's always contingent and not, let's say, autogenetic or whatever, and mm-hmm. not necessary. It's not based on universals and... I do think that, mm. that you're right. I mean, it, it makes me think of this uh, this phrase that always stuck in my mind when they said uh, politics precedes being, which is in um, a thousand plateaus. Yeah, that's right. That's right? right. So I think that there's something to that where you know politics is involved in the construction of the plane. That maybe perhaps what they call constructivism in what is philosophy, right? The construction of concepts, the laying out of the plane, the deployment of conceptual personae all involve kind of political stakes. And perhaps that's kind of what's being worked out in the examples that he gives or that they give. I, I did it too. See, it's endemic. <laughs> I know. It, I know. It's the moving from, you know, the examples they give moving from like Plato's plane to Descartes, right? There is, there is a kind of political decision about time and the anteriority of time Etc. I mean, those are just examples, but I think that that's, but I think too, the discussion about the fight against transcendence and how transcendence is continually yeah. kind of creeping up. I believe that that too is, is fully fraught with political dimensions because it, it brings back into why the image of thought is that kind of pre guattari phase of the political statement fighting against the moral, orthodox, dogmatic image of thought. I'm trying to remember where this line is, but they associate associate that injection of transcendence with a sort of injection of authority. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember what the line is, but... Let me see if I can find it. I'll try to control F. uh, This is page 45, where they say... Religious authority wants eminence to be tolerated only locally or at an intermediary level. That's actually the one, and my PDF isn't great, so it may not pick all of them, but that's the one place where authority shows up in the book. That's a good one, yeah. It's, it's, it gets yeah. worse with Christian philosophy is what, what they say, right? Which is why people like Bruno, Nicholas de Cusa, and then Spinoza all kind of get branded as, as heretics. Some of them pay for it with their lives. You know, there's making sort of deploying God in terms of eminence, whether it be as nature or 
substance, et cetera, right? There's, that's kind of a heretical thing. And that gets back to what you said kind of uh, in passing about being is said in, in one of the same sense, right? There's a sense in which university is, is at stake there, where if God does not have some sort of hierarchical position in which being is, is said of God in a, in a certain unique way, there's a way in which it's almost blasphemy to think of the creator and creatures on the same horizontal plane of being. That would be the one motivation that I would have for hanging on to chapter one of difference and repetition is precisely because that's where it's fleshed out in a lot of detail. But yeah, and when he goes through those three, you know, moments in the history of university, he says Dun Scotus and then Spinoza and then Nietzsche. And Dun Scotus is worried about precisely what you just mentioned, which mm -hmm. is that if we say that being is said in, you know, in one in the same sense of everything of which it is said, whether you're talking about God or a tick, then we flirt with heresy. And uh, and in, indeed, I mean, there are multiple stories for where the term dunce comes from, but there is a story that says that the term dunce comes from if you were an adherent to or a, an enthusiast for John Duns Scotus, right? Because clearly he was someone who was outside the boundaries of orthodoxy. And he still has this, this Duns Scotus still has this distinction between infinite and finite being by which, you know, I think Deleuze compares it someplace to like the color white. You know, there's the, there's the notion of white that's just pure, infinite, intensive white. And then there are all these various shades of, let's say, off-white. And so Scotus has this notion of infinite being, which is purely, you know, pure, absolute, intensive being versus all the ways in which being can be limited. So he tries to maintain that distinction. Spinoza obliterates that distinction, but still hangs on to the distinction between substance and modes. Right. And then Nietzsche gives us full-blown univocity. And so I think that univocity and difference and repetition is playing a, a role that's very similar to what eminence plays in what is philosophy. And you do get the sense of the stakes there. And you also get the ways in which Deleuze thinks about indifference and repetition, thinks about, you know, it's a bad word, but hierarchy. You know, he says, so does this yeah. mean everything is is just even? And he says, well, no, because there are things that go to the limits of what they can do and things that do not. There's this great line in difference and repetition. The least is equivalent to the greatest insofar as it goes to the limits of what it can do or something like that. So the question becomes then, are you living a life that is going to the limits of what it can do? So there's a lot of really interesting stuff there that I think plays a role analogous to what eminence plays in the later stuff. That line you just quoted, you can take that line as also a kind of polemic against Plato's definition of philosophy, because what is, and, and this is a definition that I think Badu stands by. If we were to schematically just kind of scaffold it and lay it out, it would be philosophy and sophistry are, are they seem the same. That's the rival for philosophy, but philosophy wagers on the truth, whereas sophistry seems to like want to diminish that. And we can see from, even though the simulacrum has lost its status as a as a key concept for Deleuze, how does, what does philosophy start except by laying out Plato, the idea, the claimants, the idea, which participates, you know, firstly, second, thirdness, etc. He's still thinking through the role of the simulacra, overturning the model copy relation and sort of the crowned anarchy of simulacra running wild. And so in, in that statement about what the least becomes greater than the greatest, when it's taken to the limits of what it can do. That I think is, yes. a, is a good reminder of why Plato and Socrates 
seem to have a distaste for sophistry because it makes the weaker argument stronger than the strongest. That's interesting. Yeah. You know, there's, there's something about the dialogical agon and there's a worry about limiting claimants in their degrees of participation in the idea that sophistry upturns, overturns that well-regulated hierarchical distinction and can allow for the worse or the less strong argument to prevail. That's kind of too a political dimension. I guess the last political dimension that immediately jumps out again in the introduction is if we define philosophy as constructivism, as creation of concepts and the laying out of a plane of eminence, et cetera, that goes against some of the prevailing forms in the history of philosophy and even in contemporary philosophy, like Habermas with is not named, but he's he's implicated with communicative rationality, et cetera. But it's not communication, it's not reflection, it's not discussion. No, wait, there's three of them. It's not contemplation, it's not reflection, yeah, it's not contemplation. It's against subjective or it's against objective, subjective, and intersubjective idealism. And I think that you know, because they, they say mathematicians don't wait for philosophy to reflect, to start reflecting on their productions, on what, on what they're doing. Artists don't need philosophy to start reflecting on what they're doing. And contemplation is, is still kind of, obviously, perhaps a dig at Aristotle and the contemplative life, but that's still kind of, that's not enough to, to distinguish the philosopher from, say, the sage, who is still kind of this religious priestly figure of transcendence. And of course, communication, I will say, this is something that feels very Deleuzean, right? Who, who hated going to the endless meetings of the French Communist Party and all of this. He, he hated all of that, whereas Guattari was definitely in the thick of it. You know, he, he definitely didn't shy away from that activity. But insofar as philosophy is concerned, and this too was what Coop was telling me uh, before we we're going to do this episode where he's like, oh man, he's shitting on, on discussion. I think that what we do here on the show, I definitely wouldn't necessarily say we do philosophy on the show, but we try to provide a milieu within which philosophical ideas, concepts, thinking can sort of perhaps begin to flow between individuals. And for one thing, I don't think we make this show as a format for debate, which I think is it's like the crucial adversary in the communicative rationality where we, we sort of air out our differences and debate and then come to a, an agreement about what's rationally correct, which is, again, I think the, the Habermas dig that they kind of plan. It's not necessarily about coming to the correct or wrong ideas. It is about kind of, as you said, spitballing, throwing things against the wall and trying to work out what is striking what is and sometimes problematic but also what is interesting what is striking i don't necessarily think that deleuze would think the podcast form was meant to be where philosophy is done in any case but at the same time you see the the videos of deleuze like teaching his overfill talk about over overloading classes right you, you see those classes where he's got such energy and if speaking and discussing these things wasn't a part of it. He would be like Spinoza and, and forego teaching uh, publicly, which he kind of admires him for in his, his little book on Spinoza, the Practical Philosophy book. 
but you know, talking about these things, I don't think that's necessarily what they mean by philosophy is not communication. It can have, there's still going to be usages of propositions, but that, is, that doesn't mean philosophy is reducible to those. That's, I think, is the key. We talked about this quite a bit when we got to that stuff about communication, because I, I am really interested in that, that question. And, you know, there's a sense in which, I, I mean, of course, you know, Plato sort of institutes what becomes the dialogical approach to philosophy. And so they say something like philosophy has never been done by, by discussion or something like that. And I yeah. think that my sense is this, that it's not that well, I mean, obviously, collaboration is inherent to their project because the Liz and Guattari write together, right? I use the example of the conference, going to a conference. And there are good and bad ways of doing conferences, or there are good and bad approaches to conference participation, I think. There's the approach that used to be pretty dominant when I was first doing conferences, and I absolutely hated it. It was that you know, a conference was a place for you to show that you were the smartest person in the room. And so the person would give a paper and you would stand up or raise your hand or whatever and try to make the person who just gave their paper look really stupid and try to show everyone else in the audience that you were really the smartest person in the room. And I think that that is counterproductive and I think it's it's toxic and I think it's prohibitive. I mean, it, it restricts thinking. At the same time, I think that the better way to think about conferencing is that it's not that the person gives the paper and I internalize every aspect of this paper and now I have assimilated it into my being, but Things that were said in the course of this paper generate things in my own thinking, right? And I might raise a question that is going to generate something in the thinking of the speaker as well. And moreover, I might pose a question and the thinker gives a response that generates something in the person in the back of the room who's not saying anything because maybe they're a little bit apprehensive or something like that. Or maybe they just, their communication style is very different. But it's it's that that encounter, to use this word of Deleuze and Guattari, that encounter itself is generative and it, let's say, fires up intensities of the self that when you part ways and you go back and, and now you are, you know, writing and thinking on your own again, it gives you new lines of flight, new models of, well, not models, but new, new avenues to pursue and new things to think about. And so I think that it's just a very a nuanced way of thinking about ways in which communication can be generative versus ways in which it's not. 100% agree. And I think perhaps as far as your comments regarding the encounter, whenever we get into a podcast, anytime that you say something could generate something, it can be completely off topic, but it can send me on a new avenue. Like you said, I just want to emphasize that I think that's great. And I think maybe that's what's yeah. valuable perhaps about what we try to do is Till the philosophical soil, maybe, for the potential for these concepts to be developed at a later time or, you know, whatever the case may be. Working through that, uh, the yeoman's work of constructing the plane. I absolutely think that what you guys do is valuable. Sorry, sorry, Taylor. And I appreciate that. And I mean, it's it's also uh, part of the reason why we do this is obviously to learn, but there's there's enjoyment in it. There is the, as Coop said, I really like that, that you did, you're right. There is something about not knowing exactly what's going to, to happen and, and, and anything feels possible uh, in, in that sense. But you're right. I, I, I do think you're right about 
conferences, there are some who try to hijack it. Maybe that's a slightly different than showing who's the smartest in the room, because I do think there are those who, who also think, I come with my pet project that I love. Let me spend you know, three minutes weaving out something that isn't really even a question, but just makes it about the thing that I like. That too can be just as stultifying and just mm-hmm. as counterproductive, even if it's not about reasserting their ego, but about reasserting their fetish or something. That too is, I feel like, when everyone is kind of collectively stifling a groan. Whenever I participated in conferences and, and, and ask questions, I always try to do it in such a way as to do it like I feel like the ideal of the show is, where it is giving maybe a slight, it could be a slight deviance, a slight swerve, but also formulating questions or topics in such a way that it gives the speaker avenues to continue speaking about their own topic, their own interests, their own things. Even if I've maybe mixed in a little bit of of something that that jarred in my head, as you're saying, like those neurons are firing, new thoughts are are happening. So giving them a springboard rather than a dead end that has to be, you know, they have to like get my avenue. I'd rather give them the chance to say more on something that, I mean, really that is, that is kind of bouncing ideas off spitballing. That's part riffing. All of that can lead to unexpected sort of connections. And uh, again, that's, that's not, necessarily concept creation, but what I think, what I, what I see in the pushback against communication, notwithstanding what I said about Deleuze not wanting to attend three hours of a French communist party meeting, and there's just interminable sort of discussions about what should be done when in fact, usually it ends up with, as we saw the PCF becoming more and more conservative in Deleuze and Guattari's time, I could see why they, why Deleuze said, this is not for me. But I think that when they're I think that what Deleuze is trying to say is communication as this ideal of an open forum where everyone is kind of democratically represented in an ideal way and things can be hashed out, you know, in such a way that the differences cancel out. It's almost like there's a beautiful soul aspect to Habermas's notion of communicative rationality where we can all, even if we all agree to disagree, we reach this higher agreement where reason shines. And I think that I go back to Deleuze. Well, we haven't talked about this yet. One conceptual persona I was thinking of, if Deleuze had one, would either be the transcendental idiot, which is from the image of thought chapter, the, the one person who is not willing to go along with Descartes and and agree that everyone knows what thinking means. Everyone knows what self means. Everyone knows what being means just by doing it. There's the one person who has the temerity or the courage to admit, I don't understand what everyone else seems to. And that too is what he calls sort of the misosophy, the ill will endemic to thought, that, that thought isn't something that comes without violence that in fact there is this force this encounter that forces us to think this problem that forces us to think and so i think too the misosopher right which 
now in this book, it's the rival or the adversarial friend, as we kind of started with, right? The Satan figure, if you will, the adversary mm-hmm. who um, <laughs> who maybe maybe says, you know, would Joe be this this holy man, this blessed man without all of the the benefits? It's not a given that Job is a holy man, and he is taken to the limit of what he can do in terms of suffering. Yeah. I was just kind of piggybacking off of, off of what you guys were saying. I do think that we are reaching that two-hour mark, and I want to give time for you to talk about your future projects. Maybe we can like look forward to what you're... Um, I know you have a couple of, of things you're working on, and so I want to give maybe the next 10, 15 minutes to, to give you that yeah. forum, and we can, we can kind of close up. I'll just speak to what you just said about the person at the conference who... Again, I think that there's there are modes of comportment to the person who, you know, has their own interests, right? And there are, are ones that are productive and ones that are actually, as you, you so aptly stated, stultifying. And the one that's stultifying is the one that is, you know, you wrote this paper, but this is what I'm interested in and you should have written my paper. And that just completely shuts down discussion. And yeah, you're right. Everyone is sitting around groaning and, and or, you know, stifling a groan as you mm. as you said it. And then there's another one, which is you've talked about this. I'm sort of coming at this from this kind of angle. And this is how this stuff sort of intersects with what you're with what yeah. you're doing. And then that becomes generative again. Right. And then and then suddenly this person, the, the speaker has something to say in response. Maybe it gives them something to think about that they've not thought about prior to this encounter. And it also by their, you know, thinking about it on the spot and putting out more in response to the person's question, it sort of gives them more to reflect on. Uh, there's that fucking bad word, reflect. But, you, you know, more to no. think about as they're going forward in their own work as well. And again, I also think that it can be immensely productive for the people who are sitting there quiet because there are a lot of us. I used to be super super quiet at conferences because my thinking all took place in here. It took a lot of time. And so I always felt like, like if I say something, it's going to come off as as silly or, or inchoate or ill-formed because I haven't really taken the time to flesh it out. I know there's stuff there. I just, and the nerves too would sort of prevent it from, from materializing. So I think a lot of the people who are sitting there quiet and maybe not saying anything, there's still stuff going on and, the, and there's generation taking place. And so, yeah, I think it's that it's that willingness to to go back to the beginning, uh, you know, to to admit your ignorance and to speak mm-hmm. authentically and to speak generatively. And as you said, with a uh, an appreciation for what the speaker is doing. Right. And then when you're both working in that kind of atmosphere, it can be just immensely generative. And that's why I I really do appreciate what you guys do so much here. And. Thank you. It's kind of funny because I'm a bit of a Luddite. I'm just a bit of a Luddite. I didn't get my first iPhone until the end of 2015. I have only just recently discovered or figured out how to, this is going to sound so stupid, but how to listen to podcasts. The thing is, it's so easy to do, but I just never knew how to go about doing it. And I was traveling back from Boone, North Carolina, and I knew I had signed up for a free Spotify account. And I went into my Spotify account and found your podcast. I was like, well, this is much, much easier than I ever realized it was. (laughs) I feel so stupid in saying that. But but like, so I've been listening to a lot of your back episodes. And I said that I listened to Eugene Holland and Dan Smith and Chantel Gray and and John Rofe and just a lot of them. I've just, it's just amazing. And again, it's not that you're just 
sucking up what they're saying. It's that what's being discussed gives you a lot more to think about on your own. And and mm -hmm. I, you know, I reached out to Chantel Gray after listening to her episode and, and Excellent. we had an exchange and, and she sent me, you know, a PDF of her book and I sent her a PDF of mine and, you know, just things like that. It's just, it's just, I think what you do is wonderful. And uh, I also feel just a little bit guilty. I feel like this conversation was, was very generative and I think we've had a lot to discuss and it's hard to believe quite honestly that two hours has passed, but we didn't really get much into the nuts and bolts of what is philosophy part one. And I feel a little bit like I may have sidetracked us. And so I know no, no, no. that's no, I, not the case. Two things. One, I'm really happy that you reached out to Chantel and that is an unexpected consequence of, of the encounters, right? That's just even making people aware of, of all of these thinkers and the fact that, that we get a chance to just kind of continually read and grow, but also share with them same interests and passions and hopefully some of that seeps into the discussion and, and infects others like kind of like a virus in a good way in a happy way and and the and active forces rather than reactive forces if you want to speak in the the nietzschean vein or uh, good relations right that compose with and boost our power just to speak in that way too i exactly i think exactly and i, I would just say what is philosophy was kind of just an excuse to choose something because we, we, we set this up two weeks ago and just you had mentioned that you had been teaching Deleuze and had even done this text. And I kind of said, well, it's not often covered, which we didn't really cover that much either. But on the other <laughs> hand, uh, it's, it's, it's not about the exegesis. It's kind of just about we talked about some of the broad themes and we related it back to some of his other work, which I think some of Deleuze's other work and some of Guattari's. I think that that itself gives sort of a context for for why we chose that because the question itself doesn't even need to be focused on a book that asks that question and makes it into a problem yeah. it, it itself yeah. is is an opportunity to discuss the things with that we're interested in and passionate about and um and try to lay out a few of the aspects without necessarily having to um to go into go into more than that because it already is this occasion for thinking very broadly so I'm very happy that you've introduced new technology, the podcast format. You can listen to it on all kinds <laughs> of different formats, Apple, uh, SoundCloud, yeah. Spotify. I know. But, but I mean, like I, I said, I feel so stupid because it's no, it's, it's not, been ubiquitous for so long. And I've just now like done the work of tracking down how to listen to it. I do think that it's something that that it's not an everyday thing that we encounter, um, which is also why we put our episodes on YouTube, because I do think people are familiar more or less with that as well. We try to put that content on and uh, we're going to try to uh, I know Coop and I did a test pilot of a kind of before the episode, we record video of us kind of pre gaming. We're hoping to do more of that and put that on YouTube as well for patrons and um, I want to thank you for your feedback. Sometimes it's little things. It's nice to hear that. But in any case, yes, you told us about reading Deleuze. Maybe tell us about the other two. Pro I, you may have more, but tell us maybe <laughs> about the, don't you have a book coming out on Foster Wallace? Is that right? And you also have. That's one that. So the Reading Deleuze book. Yeah, I've talked about that. I am working on a book on I know this is super ambitious, but I'm hoping to finish these two over the summer. There's one on literature 
Deleuze and literature that I, I really want to look at as well. And so when I initially conceived of the Reading Deleuze project, I proposed it to Wittgenstock as as two volumes, not unlike, and, and I found this out after the fact, but John Rofe was working on this two volume exegetical work, I guess, interpretive work of the entirety of Deleuze's arc. And I had... I had conceived of something extremely similar before I ever knew that John was was doing that. And I pitched it to Wittgenstock and they accepted the proposal. But the caveat was they said, we can't do two books on Deleuze. And I said, OK, so I got to be more selective. But what I ended up doing is the reading Deleuze book is going to look at the big Spinoza book, the Nietzsche book, Difference of Repetition, Logic of Sense, Anti-Oedipus, the Bacon book, a few of the plateaus from A Thousand Plateaus, and then probably What is Philosophy? But that will give me a lot of leeway to do a lot with the literary texts in my own work on literature. So the book on literature is going to look at the stuff on, what's he call it? The loquendum, I think, in Difference and Repetition. You know, the stuff on language in the, the latter part of, of Difference and Repetition. And then how that factors into the logic of sense and the grapplings with literature and the logic of sense. And then look at some of the authors like Melville and Virginia Woolf that he works with so much. And then I, I want to end with a chapter where I sort of try to build an understanding of the materiality, the materiality of literature instead of focusing so as we so often do on the interpretive ideality of literature, focus right. on the materiality of literature and uh, and build a sort of theory of that out of some of these authors. And it will heavily involve Cormac McCarthy because mm -hmm. I've gotten so interested in McCarthy lately. And I really do think that McCarthy is interested in the materiality of language as well. Those are the two big things that I have coming up. I'm also co-editing a volume with Rob Lazecki, a friend of mine who also did his PhD at Purdue working with Dan. It's called Deleuze Guattari and the Schizoanalysis of the Earth. You know, the geophilosophy chapter of what is philosophy is really had an impact on me in the last few months. We've put together quite an impressive cadre of scholars interested in writing. Thomas Nail, who has his own book on the theory of the earth. I believe, let's see, I think Dan is going to do something. Claire Colebrook is going to do something. Just, you know, a, a lot of really, really good people involved in this project. And then Rob and I are also planning an authored book together on Marx and ecology. So that's on the horizon as well. Cool. So these are all things that, and I'm working on as I mentioned, I'm working on a lot of pieces on McCarthy. I think that, you know, I've published two pieces on Wallace and I've published or I've got another article that needs some expansion and got to revise and resubmit from the Wallace Journal. But I don't know if the book, if that's going to come to fruition in a book or not. We'll see. For a while there, I was thinking at looking, thinking about looking at the notion of subjectivity in Wallace's work. I don't know how familiar you, you guys are with Wallace, but there's this, I do think that there is this sort of, um, well, to use the phrase becoming imperceptible that you mm -hmm. can trace through Wallace's work from beginning to end, the way that he treats subjectivity. He only has the three novels. And in fact, the last one, The Pale King was, was never finished. I think he sort of, he had all of these drafts and things. And he, I think he sort of left some notes as to how he saw it coming to completion. But it was actually kind of a controversy in the world of Wallace studies as to whether or not that book should be released because mm -hmm. Wallace was so meticulous in his own his own contributions to the editing process. The editing of Infinite Jest, for instance, was, you know, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Wallace was very, very, you know, hands-on when it came to 
what the final version was going to look like. And so, you know, there are some who think and and not without reason that perhaps the Pale King should never have been released because he wasn't involved in the editing process. But the interesting thing about the Pale King, there are a couple of interesting things. I mean, it's written in a very different style from Infinite Jest, and it's got more of a, what's, I want to say something of a wispy feel to it, a less subjective feel and a more of a wispy is just a word. You know, it feels like it's less driven by subjective experience. I don't know how else to say it, but some of it, it comes off as much more poetic in many of its, in many of its moments than Infinite Jest does, I think. It's also, I think, a kind of reflection on, it's written in the early aughts, I guess, and uh, a reflection on neoliberalism and the impact of neoliberalism. And and it's got more of a social and political bent, I think, to it. So it's still an interest of mine. I'm not sure if it's going to come to fruition or not, but it is one of the things that's in the hopper, I guess. Yeah, that was a long-winded answer to you. Last thing, though, (laughs) what about the... um the early stages of a new edit collection for the Deleuze collection series, the Luzo Guatri and Transfigurations? That's a good question. That's probably still on my website, isn't it? I had initially conceived that project in 2016 and reached out to a group of scholars and, um, you know, got a lot of a lot of interest. And then I started having some sort of professional troubles at my institution. And the next few years became basically fight for survival in a sense. And so that took up a lot of my bandwidth, my my mental bandwidth. And so the the trans project got sort of sidelined for a little while. And then in the last year or two, I, I I got back into it and I reached out, I reached back out to the scholars. And it turns out that someone else had done a collection with the Bloomsbury series that was like Deleuze, Guattari, and the schizoanalysis of the transgender or something like this. And so a lot of the people who had been interested in writing for me had ended up writing for this collection. And so when I reached back out to the group of scholars, I got very, very limited response. Mm. So that I think has sort of been sidelined for the time being. Maybe some, I would love to bring it back into discussion. I think I only had two of the original people who reached back out to me and said, yeah, I'd still love to participate in this. So that's kind of unfortunate, but I'd love, I would love to do it because I mean, we're seeing so much of this fight right now that, you know, I I was telling my students the other day, 10 years ago, I sort of thought that these battles were in our rear view in a sense. I sort of thought not, not that they were in our rear view, but that we were on the other side of the, of the hill. Right. And that everything else was going to be I don't want to say easy, but I thought that the worst of the struggles were behind us. And now I'm that seems to be not the case at all. And you look at just the intense animosity and, and just deep, deep hatred that you see expressed on social media all over the place towards transgender individuals. And it's just sickening to me. It's just absolutely and infuriating. And so yeah. this moment is ripe for having this conversation. And I do think Deleuze and Guattari are excellent thinkers when it comes to the production of A Thousand Sexes, for instance, the the wide multiplicity of ways that they have of thinking about gender and sexuality in Anti-Oedipus and, and uh, A Thousand Plateaus. But so that's a very, again, a, a very long-winded answer. It was a project that was very, very dedicated to bringing to fruition. And it just, because of you know, personal issues, it sort of lost steam and, uh, and some of the scholars, it seems like, uh, moved on. So it just didn't happen. And that was a book, the book you mentioned, Deleuze Guattari and the Schizoanalysis of Trans Studies. That was a book that, that Coop showed me as soon as it came out. And I think I may or may not have used 
legal or illegal ways of, of gaining access to, to reading it. But that makes sense that that might have cut a swath of those of those authors out of the list. But, you know, that's something that you never know. I mean, there, there's a lot of authors yeah. who probably would be willing to contribute. And it's a very yeah. important point. As you said, it's also critically timely in a certain sense. It needs to be positive representations and, and pushback against, as you said, the animosity that the right has found a new scapegoat for. Right. Yeah, for, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's disgusting. It just, it just pisses me off so badly. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, don't be sorry. Don't be sorry. But it does. It's, it's going to be passionate about it. And, and hopefully whether or not that, that comes to fruition, I do think that you're right. There's many different avenues all throughout the work and you mentioned Anti-Oedipus and A Thousand Plateaus, and it, and it kind of, as a way of maybe finishing on a positive note, it goes to show some of the impact and influence that Guattari brings, because I feel like that's, again, it's not necessarily absent. You can think of logic of sense, in the, and, and especially towards the end of the book, uh, when, when sexuality is taken up, but Deleuze himself thought of logic of sense as kind of ending with this impasse with Lacanian psychoanalysis. Yeah. And Guattari, I think, really broadened the horizon. And, you know, we can really thank him for that aspect of, of rethinking psychoanalysis in ways in which it's much more open to, um, for example, I just think about like someone like Lacan, who, who I, could, I could see going in their direction, at least in the later years. But then you have the inheritor of Lacanianism with, you know, Jacques-Alain Miller, who's pretty much, you know, on the wrong side of history, in my view. So, mm -hmm. so I think that Deleuze and Guattari are very timely on this mm -hmm. issue. And hopefully, whether or not your, your volume comes to fruition, people will continue writing on this yeah. with Deleuze and Guattari and, and other thinkers. You mentioned the, the way in which it's, it's present in Deleuze's early work. I think it's there in Proust and Signs as well, but again, yeah. not to nearly the extent that it is in the later work with Guattari. A Thousand Plateaus, the piece, the piece on the becomings, that piece alone has had such a massive impact on the way that I think about this question. And um, I think there's so much that can be unpacked from their work. And I think it's, well, I say this in the end of my book on Deleuze and Derrida, I think it's one of the reasons that especially second wave feminists had some problems with Deleuze and Guattari early on. But it's also one of the things that I think make them particularly fruitful when it comes to thinking issues of an infinite multiplicity of ways of thinking about gender expression. I yeah. think that they are much more fruitful in that conversation. I'm trying to think, is it particularly, I'm paraphrasing where they say like, even, even women have to undergo a becoming woman, yeah. something like that. So I could see how that might piss off some, some feminists yeah. who probably would, would say they don't have any right to speak on that yeah. topic as white heterosexual, you know, cisgender males, which, you know, you could, that has a valid place, but on the other hand, if that's the only counter argument, I think that perhaps that that falls short in, in seeing what could be fruitful in something like that, especially today. I mean, that to me, that's aged well after what, 43 years. That's yeah. I mean, that's it's aged fairly well for. Uh, but in any case, I appreciate yeah. you talking about your topics. As Coop mentioned, maybe I have you back on. We might do some McCarthy, uh, McCarthy with you. I would love to do that. I mean, 
I spoke with Thomas Nail a year or so ago, and I was just like, man, how the fuck do you write so many <laughs> books, you know? And, and he said, I sort of joke with him. I'm like, man, you really pissed me off. Do you realize this? Because I think I write quite a bit, but then it's like, oh, Thomas Nail has three new fucking books coming out. <laughs> and he had like two books come out last year or something like that. So, but anyway, I, I love that he's, he's a great guy. He's really, really smart and really generous with his, his time. So I, I, I'm joking, sort of, <laughs> but uh, but he said, and, and I, I think I agree with him on this, that he said he thinks in books. Like he said, yeah. I don't really think in papers. I think in books. And I, I think I do too. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying that all as a way of saying that I think I can see a book on McCarthy in the future. I don't know what it's going to look like right now, but I think I've, I've got one sort of percolating. That's awesome. Nice. That, that's really yeah. great. We're going to let you go. Uh, Coop and I are going to stay on just for a minute to talk about what we have coming up next week. We're going to be discussing the fold, um, right? The fold with, with Dan Smith. He uh, and his oh, translation fantastic. as well. He did his own translation of it. I think before the work even came out in English. And so he shared that with us and we'll be working oh, with man. it. And uh, if you want, I can, I can send you that. That's I was thinking awesome. even Guattari's screenplay, if you haven't read it, A Love of UIQ kind of goes in the direction of some of these questions about identities and gender and sexuality and subjectivity in a pretty Excellent. interesting way. I wasn't even aware of this. You can actually buy a copy or I think University of Minnesota Press did a a translation oh, of it. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. It's actually okay. neat. The cover the cover is like this kind of static, but it looks you can see it's like Guattari's photograph which is kind oh, of cool maybe i can share my screen and look this and up. what's it called again a love of uiq it's like I'll a science for fiction yeah it's kind of like a little bit play. like what's the uh the uh movie from the 80s with james woods and blondies in it it's by the same guy that did the fly <laughs> you're not talking about videodrome yeah videodrome oh my god yeah okay okay interesting it has kind of a similar vibe but yeah oh my god I was not aware of this at all. It was univocal. That was that's Drew Burke's um, gig. Shout out to Drew. Oh wow, that's really cool. I will have to check this out. We can discuss. We can discuss what we have coming up. But yeah, we're going to be doing Leibniz. I know that this is one of Coop's been fascinated with the monadic master. This will be interesting to yeah. do more more Deleuze. I don't know if you'll find this interesting, but I kind of see some of the stirrings of the body without organs through Leibniz a little bit. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That's awesome. We'll get to talk to, to Dan about that because I know Coop's been workshopping this idea. And so maybe that's something we can try to pregame next week before we meet yeah, with Dan. Yeah, good idea. Try to work that out and uh, also make more content for patrons. It's something that we haven't really done because we don't like to put our discussions behind a paywall uh, or like, you know, but if we can have our pregame once a week before we meet with a guest, and just, you know, kind of work out where we're interested, you know, it might be also fruitful content for, for listeners. So well, um, Burns a patron now too. I forgot to mention, I don't know if I sent you that. Or not. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Thank you for that as well. Yeah. I yeah, mean, you, you did mention that. So, uh, so hopefully we'll be making more content because we want, you know, it, yeah, I want to give it, something back for sure. We want to give something back, but also make it so that listeners who who aren't patrons aren't missing out because 99% of what we talk about is going to like, it's going to be the, the stuff we're interested in. And so we'll be able to flesh it out beforehand, but it'll come in the episode. So it's, it's kind of, it doesn't strictly violate our principle of not making things too exclusive, but uh, mm -hmm. in any case, Vern, thank you so much for, for your time. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for just sharing with us. 
your thoughts and your teaching philosophy, which I think is, is important and sometimes overlooked when one thinks about teachers and teaching. I mean, it, it also came out in your origin story because there is a sense in a teaching philosophy and tr how one treats students, not just in class, but out of class and how that can have sometimes even more of an effect without, Absolutely, yeah. you know, unintended or not, because, you know, perhaps it'd be more honorable to just flat out put your criticism into words rather than into looks and glances, which can sometimes be a little bit more intimidating and, and, and uh, hurtful. I would respect someone more if they just said to you, hey, I don't know if your living situation or all the responsibilities you're juggling, if you're going to be able to do it. That would be respectful, I think. And so, you know, just the teaching philosophy is, it's something that's lived and not just isolated in the classroom. So um, thank you so much again. I'm sure we'll thank be in Thank you touch. for having me. This episode will come out next week. But Vern, love you, buddy. This was a lot of fun. And uh, you're always welcome on the show. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it, you guys. Absolutely. And once again, thanks to Vern and Sisney for joining Taylor and I on this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. The very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is unconscious. The whole state of things, the pure violence without object This is the typical violence of Violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I meant is the following. Nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange.